of Oakland, California, epic recording artist, Tower of Power. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Path to Pro Soccer Podcast. I'm your host, Tommy Hoda. On today's show, we'll be joined by current head coach of Turks and Caicos, Matt Barnes. So let's get right into it. Joining me on the phone is Matt Barnes. Matt, thanks for taking the time today. How are you? I'm doing awesome, Tommy. Thanks for the call. It's good to hear from you guys. Can you start by maybe telling us your earliest memories in the game growing up? Uh, what first got you in? Do you have a first memory that, that really attracted you to the game of soccer? You know, it's weird. We um, we moved, my mom had moved me down to Bakersfield, California from a little mountain community and got me got me playing at about, I don't know, probably five or six years old and, um, you know, never stopped playing since. So I would say, yeah, I mean, it's... Um, been ingrained in my life for a long long time my mom was you know coaching at a back in the day when there wasn't a whole lot of people playing and coaching soccer she was a yso ayso coach and um yeah so just kept me kept me playing and uh I, i haven't stopped since awesome could you actually go into that a little bit about having i guess awesome to hear a mom out coaching her younger boys in ayso can you talk a little bit about having your mom as a coach yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, my, my mom's actually probably the, the best athlete in the family, you know, growing up. And um, when she when she brought us down to Bakersfield, she started coaching and, and got a little bit involved with with the boys when we were younger. But then kind of branched off and started coaching my younger sister, who's who's two years younger than than me. And my sister's a, a phenomenal athlete. So, you know, mom, uh, yeah, she was just really involved with us, you know, throughout throughout our whole you know, career playing all the way up until, you know, college when I, I moved away, she couldn't, you know, watch as much, but she didn't miss much. And, you know, was always around the game and loved the game and she still does. So it, it was, it was pretty cool. Didn't really have a, a, you know, a strong father figure in my life, but it was, it was pretty awesome having a mom that was, that was pretty involved in the game. So I was real, real fortunate from that, from that aspect. That's awesome. And then you, what was your entire, I guess, soccer experience like growing up in Central California, Bakersfield? Did you always think about it as something to get you into college or something you wanted to do at the next level, or was it just something you took for fun at the time? No, it wasn't for a while, right? Because, I mean, look, you're, you're still talking about, I mean, I, I wouldn't say our parents were first-generation soccer players, but most of my family didn't even play, and we grew up in you know, Bakersfield's kind of kind of a rough and, and tumble town. Football, basketball, baseball are pretty predominant. They were back in the day, so it was always kind of for me. Just, just, just I've always liked being a little bit different. So, you know, you grow up, and you know, even all the way through high school, I remember uh, walking into the locker room one day, and one of the football coaches, you know, op- opens up the window and said, "Barnes, you still playing that communist sport?" Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And if you knew anything about it, you knew it, you know, you'd know it's from your ancestry. But uh, yeah, no, still playing that communist sport. So, <laughs> you know, just dealing with stuff like that. I, I was I was pretty, uh, pretty good athlete. I was running track and field in in uh, in high school and, and had some offers to do that. I was playing football. And then about probably about my junior year. You know, I was getting really into the club scene and doing well, and I had to, the the football coaches wouldn't let me. Um, they wouldn't let me just come out and kick. So I was I was playing both sides of the of the ball as my freshman and and, and uh, sophomore year in high school for football, and then my junior year came. And I decided I want to stick to just playing soccer. Uh, they wouldn't let me just kick. So that was it for American football for me. And I still ran track through my senior year, um, but mostly just focused on, on soccer. I just, I've always had a love for the game, and I like team sports. And, you know, like I said, I was real lucky to, you know, to go to, to grow up with it in, a, you know, an area where it wasn't, wasn't too popular and it wasn't, you know, not, not a lot of people played past, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old. And for me, you know, being able to, coach at the international level now or even last weekend i sat at the you know i sat in the arena for the mls final and just just blown away man i you know sitting with seventy three thousand people for the mls finals you know for guys like me uh it's pretty incredible and an inspiring moment you know in, in a life full of 
you know, a full soccer. It's been pretty dedicated to my whole life. So it's just, for me, it's just been really, really encouraging to see the growth and, and what's going on in the U.S. right now. Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you a question, I guess, about Bakersfield as someone from Northern California and just knowing that it's actually a bigger city than most people realize, number one, and then it is in the Central Valley. What Do you think it will ever become a soccer city? Like, why don't you think it may not have an NPSL PDL team or even potentially down the road now that Fresno has a division, I mean, a pro team, Bakersfield possibly down the road? What do you think it would take to get that city more moving in the same direction with soccer having its own club team there? That's a really good question. And somebody actually, I think Jordan just asked me that the other day, just what's going on because that, you know, they had a PDL team when the PDL first came out, um, the Bakersfield Brigade. And, um, and so they were, you know, they have some roots in the early, early PDL years. And as you know, I, I, I was coaching in, uh, at Cal State Bakersfield with Simon Tobin and Jeremy Gunn back in the, you know, mid, mid nineties and early nineties. And Simon had brought, you know, I mean, we were getting great crowds at, at the, at the Cal State Bakersfield game. Soccer's always been popular there. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a pretty blue collar city. It's a lot larger than people think. Like you said, I just read they're, they're closing on 700, so what, seven, 800,000 people in the, in the greater Bakersfield region. So it's, it's really grown tremendously. And I think the market probably would support something i would think um it's, it, it's a great there's you know great hispanic heritage there and um you know we grew up playing in the mexican league and there's a lot of people that play and follow the game there so i don't know i don't know if the, if the funding's just not there for it but i feel like the the area is big enough to support you know at, at the very least a, a quality npsl or pdl team yeah, and then you mentioned another Bakersfield coach right there that I wanted to talk about a little later, but I'll bring it up now. Is that's Jeremy Gunn? I know you worked alongside him. Did you always know he was going to be, I guess, as special as he is, winning three national t- titles in a row? What what signs did you see working with him? I mean, you, you never know as young coaches. We were we were working with with Simon, and let's see, in '97 we won the the Division Two national championship at Cal State Bakersfield. Jeremy was the the first assistant, and I was the second. Um, but you know, I mean, he's always been a really driven guy, right? Like as a player and, and, uh, even as a young coach, you just knew he was going to do something in the game because he's just a little bit more driven than the rest of us, you know, and I consider myself a pretty driven human being. So yeah, I kind of always, kind of always thought he'd do well. And he's just, you know, he's just gone from, you know, assistant coach into his own division two program and won national championships at Fort Lewis and then got a shot at division one. And, uh, took Charlotte to the national championship, and then, you know, everybody knows what he's done at done at Stanford. Now he's just, I, you know, I still think he's the best in the business, and uh, I still talk to him frequently. I still, you know, he's he's one of the few guys I call when I need some some career advice, and uh, I try to spend uh, a week or two every year up there, you know, with him, and especially in the spring when when I can. And I think he does, I still think he's doing some innovative things and, um, you know, I'll, I'll tell anybody that'll listen to me. I think he's the best in the business. Yeah. Um, and then just to move back to after your young playing career, you went on to play soccer in college. What, what was your college soccer experience night? Like I noticed you earned degrees in physical education. Were you always lining up to be a coach or did you still want to potentially play pro? I know this was before there was MLS, so I don't even know if that was a goal of yours. Was your goal always to be a coach or did you have aspirations of playing pro? Yeah, both for me. I mean, I knew I wanted to coach at a young age. I, I, I mean, I started coaching at about 16 years old, uh, Again, going back to the early days in Bakersfield, the AYSO was they they were short on coaches one year when I was 16, and they made an exemption and let me coach. So I had my driver's license, so they approved it. So I was, you know, I was coaching at, at that level, you know, back in the early days. So I started about 16 years old coaching, and then all through college, I started, uh, you know, the Matt Barnes summer soccer camp. So even in Bakersfield back in the days, I was running out and. And hustling, I, I I found a couple sponsors for the camps that you know would bring pizza in on every Friday, and um, that's kind of how one of the ways I paid for my college, you know, as I went through. So, um, yeah, I would say my my college career really really sparked up my my interest. I was a late bloomer, pretty young. I graduated at uh, you know high school at seventeen as a late bloomer. I was a good you know good athlete in high school. I had had a I had had uh, an offer to go uh, play goalkeeper. 
at, at a school and I didn't want to be a goalkeeper. And then, um, you know, I ended up getting recruited to Judson University as a defender and then ended up being, you know, an All-American striker in the NAIA. And then I had about a six-month hiatus right after right after college. And um, I went to, to Houston to, to work, work at a little inner city school there. But when I came back to Chicago for to run summer camps, the, the pro team had, uh, had called me. So I went out, I wasn't as sharp, nearly as sharp or fit as I was in, you know, six months earlier, but, um, I ended up signing my, you know, my, my pro contract, but man, like you said, back in those days, it was just before the MLS, we weren't making any money. Um, you know, I was playing in the USISL pro for Rockford and they were just doing goofy stuff. You know, we had, um, like, you know, kick-ins from 20 yards in on the sidelines and they were running blue cards back then where, you know, you had yellow cards and red cards. And if your team accumulated points, you get a blue card and that stopped the game. And they would line everybody up at, at the midfield. And one guy would get to go to the top of the circle from the other team. And, you know, the rep would blow his whistle. And it was like a pack of dogs chasing this guy one-on-one with a keeper. And they were just doing some crazy stuff back then. They were talking about making the goals bigger and trying to make it more American. So, you know, in some, in some senses I'd gone from, you know, a purist and, playing and coaching the game to playing my first pro contract in the USISL, which was, you know, I'll grant they were trying new things, but it, it was, it was a little bit of a different professional experience for me. I was, I was living in Chicago and driving to Rockford. So, I mean, it was, it was basically costing me more money to, to play professional soccer than I was making. So I didn't play that long. I wouldn't say, you know, I went from being, a, I would say it was a very, very good, uh, you know, college player and probably an average pro. I, I didn't stick stick with it long enough. So, at 23, 22, 23, I got I got offered a head coaching job at uh, back in Bakersfield at at a high school, and made the decision to go back to back to California and start working and, and coaching at the high school level there, which was you know a good opportunity for for you know 24 year old. So you mentioned starting your coaching kind of early. Where where did you get your coaching education? And I guess what are your thoughts on the formal coaching courses versus the informal side of maybe going to study next to Jeremy and seeing what he runs in practice just on your own versus the formal coaching education process? Yeah, that's a real difficult question for for me to answer because, you know, anybody, I would tell anybody out there not to follow my path because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going through the formal education process now and I'm kicking myself for not doing it 20 years ago. When I was, um, when I was teaching in high school, I started, uh, you know, I, I was applying to U.S. soccer courses, which at that point they were doing in, in Los Angeles. So I had, I had gone to the school district and two times and written bid letters and got clearance to go down for a week to LA. And I ended up driving down once. And I showed up and nobody was at the designated place. And I, I finally found, you know, the guy that was supposed to be leading it. And he said, oh, you know, we forgot to call you. We canceled the course. So, you know, I drove back to Bakersfield. That happened to me twice. And so, you know, at, at, at that point in my career, I was just kind of, okay, I, I was kind of done with it. Um, when I got back into college coaching about seven years ago, you know, the U.S. soccer and uh, the, the coaches – uh, NSCAA were working together and most of my colleagues said, Hey, go the NSCAA route. They're a little bit more coach friendly and you're going to make better, you know, connections. So I went and got my premier license with the NSCAA. And then of course, with my luck, the year I, I wanted to jump back in and work on my USSF stuff. I, I was supposed to be able to go to my B and they canceled all that. So, um, yeah, it's been, it, it's been a bit of a nightmare for me. So, um, us soccer, at this point, won't won't listen, you know, to me or anybody. So they've made me go back, and uh, they were going to make me go back and do my D license. And we we found I actually found an old my old D license from probably 20 years ago, and so they accepted that. But I just finished my C license with U.S. Soccer, and um, you know, uh, I met some tremendous people in there. But you know, you spend a few thousand dollars, didn't learn didn't learn much at all, and it seems to be a waste of time. It's you know, I, I wish they would look at people's kind of you know, their career path and, and, and experience at least and make some decisions. But um, needless to say, uh, I got through that, passed that. I'll jump into my B this year. Um, I've, I've been accepted into my UEFA B. I've not gone to do that yet because I just feel like I need to 
I need to get through this uh, USSF stuff so I can, you know, that'll open some more doors on the professional side for me. So, yeah, just uh, jumping through the hoops right now. And, you know, I would tell anybody out there to start doing that stuff when you're when you're young and, and get through it. But to answer your question, I've learned, you know, so much more from, you know, just, just being around, you know, the best coaches. I've always spent time with the, the Jeremy Guns, and um, I went to – Two summers ago, I went and spent a week with Raymond Verheijen in Holland and, um, you know, really started to perfect some of our periodization models and things like that. I learned, you know, an incredible amount from Raymond and, and the course I went through with him. Uh, I've tried to throw myself in and around as many, you know, USL coaches as, as possible. I spent some time with uh, several of the USL teams, you know, in Texas, spent some time with Darren Powell. He does a great job here in San Antonio. Went out and spent some time this year with uh, Phoenix Rising, uh, Rio Grande Valley. So, um, you know, anytime I get an opportunity uh, to, to go just learn from people that are actually doing it on the ground, I try to do that. And that's that's where I would say the majority of my, my really good ideas are, you know, are, are from. Yeah, and then I guess after that, what, brought you back to texas because that's that's where you are now i know you coach the npsl side in midland odessa what got you back to texas wow so let me rewind i I mean i don't think people realize this all the time you know seven seven and a half years ago i was teaching high school as a special ed teacher in in bakersfield and um i I was i was teaching special ed kids from about seven different high schools and, and working with them from a from a professional point of view, like I would, um, you know, we were teaching them kind of career courses and I wasn't able to get them hired after high school. So even though I was teaching special ed, I went out and started a business. I started a commercial residential and cleaning company, um, commercial and residential cleaning company where I could hire some of these special ed kids once they graduated and the company actually ended up taking off. Um, so I was able to hire a lot of those kids once we had, you know, graduated them from the program and, and that was going great, but I, I won't forget it. I mean, it, it was less than eight years ago in, in April, you know, I was, I had gone and taught high school all day. I'd ran and done my club stuff after high school. I came home and I got a call that night that one of my crews that was supposed to be working the night shift didn't show up. So I was out, you know, pressure washing and window washing till about three or 4 a.m., um, and I just said, I'm done, man. I'm just, this isn't what I want to do. I didn't love teaching in the classroom and I definitely didn't want to be, you know, pressure washing and window washing. And I was just doing too much of that type of stuff. So, uh, just made the decision. I quit a 15 year teaching, you know, tenured position and we gave the business to a family member, um, you know, helped turn the club over to a new director and, uh, and I, you know, left everything behind and got into college coaching. So my first college coaching job was at a at NAI school in Arizona. And then from Arizona, I jumped into a, a job in Texas and then, you know, back to San Francisco State. Now, you know, ended up back in Texas for a second time. So I've moved around quite a quite a bit in the last, you know, seven, seven, seven and a half years. But it's kind of a crazy story to think even sometimes I sit down and, you know, just just thinking about it myself, like I'm still not even sure how I got to international coaching. You know, I was a special ed teacher seven years ago. Yeah, just one one quick thing on that is how different of a place is Midland, Texas, to San Francisco, California? Oh my gosh, you're talking about people. People would ask me about that. So I'm coaching college, and you know, in uh, in one of the most, you know, I mean, look. San Francisco is so liberal and, and there's so much going on there. And then you go to the, basically the Bible belt and, and one of the most conservative places in the world. So that, that was, it was, it was like being on different planets for me. So, you know, when I was at Lubbock Christian, I had met the owner of uh, the general manager from the soccers and um, they had asked me to come in and interview for that job. And, and the, the franchise was really struggling and, you know, it was it was tough because you're 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 in the middle of West Texas, five six hours from anything. And, you know, I kept wondering to myself, how are we going to build a PDL team here? And um, I decided to jump on it, and we we started some new kind of sales techniques. And yeah, the rest is history. We had a we had a great run. So during you know my my college coaching tenure, I was fortunate enough that most of the, the universities really supported me doing that in the summers. 
and um, just had a great run through the you know the PDL Final Four, and then my last season there in PSL National Championship run. It was a pretty incredible thing to do from from West Texas, in the middle of nowhere. It was a really cool experience. Yeah, can we talk a little bit about I guess that championship run? Because I remember you got to number one, you got to go play away to Detroit City, which in the NPSL is kind of the top of the top to just the, the, that away game. But then you reach the final and you lose half your team going back to college. Can you just talk about what that whole week was like? First off, beating Detroit in Detroit and then trying to scrape a team together to go to Elm City. Yeah, it was honestly, Tommy, it was one of the craziest, you know, couple of weeks of my life. We, um, we kept telling the NPSL, I kept telling my GM, Jeff, uh, Von Holly, I kept saying, look, this, you know, we, we weren't favored. We weren't even favored to win our, our conference. I think we came into the conference playoffs as the lowest seed, you know, the four seed. But you can just tell as a coach when your team starts hitting their stride. And I knew these guys were hitting their stride. And so we ended up winning the conference and then just kept moving on and on and on. We kept telling the NPSL, hey, we, you know, we, we, we have potential to be, you know, playing pretty, pretty deep into this. And I was one of the few, you know, NPSL PDL teams that ran exclusive, you know, college, you know, college rosters. So I, you know, basically only work with college kids. It's the only reason I wanted to do it in the summer. So, so the, you know, and the NPSL itself didn't even think we would win. I remember the game before we played um, in Detroit, uh, we came out and won that game. So we knew we were going to go play in Detroit and we were watching the highlights from, from the Detroit match and the NPSL was there. Like they were all their head guys were there and con- congratulating Detroit after the game. They had big tables set up at midfield and we're walking through and putting, you know, trophies and, and things on everybody. And, and we were in Midland and not, nobody showed up and we didn't even have a trophy. So in fact, the trophy showed up about four days later and we had to mail uh, the team we played, we had to mail their their second place trophy out. So it was kind of like nobody, you know, another one of those things, just kind of the bad news bears. Nobody thought we would get there. So we ended up going to Detroit, uh, probably one of the, the one of the best experiences of my life. You know, we have such a fanatical following there. I don't know, there's probably seven or 8,000 people at the game and smoke flares going off all night. And the crowd was, you know, just, just brutal. Um but we loved it. We, we, we tried to prepare for the, the guys for that. And we, we did our very best to just to keep everybody loose. We had lost a couple of players for the Detroit game, but still had enough quality to do well there. And we won, we won that game in penalty kicks and it was a fantastic opportunity. So then going to the national championship, uh, we had recalls. All of our division one guys got called back to their programs. It was too late. And almost all of our division two guys got called back. Um, so by the time we roll up the, you know, six days before the championship game, it's out on the East Coast. Um, we have nine, nine players. So the NPSL had made the decision they were going to let us sign some players. They pulled back from that decision. Uh, they had ended up offering our spot to Detroit, who, you know, Detroit rightfully. And I, I was really proud of the fact that they turned it down and said, hey, we didn't earn it. So we went to the national championship with with 13 players and um, six of them I met uh, about four hours before kickoff. The the NPSL, it was a difficult job, but they flew us into three different cities. So we had, you know, cars picking up people from all over the place. I finally got most of the team together for lunch. Um, after lunch, I asked the, the hotel to clear out one of their ballrooms. So they did that for us. We ran through a tactical session at about the three hour mark. And then we jumped in our cars and, and we went and played the national championship with, you know, six guys I'd never met. So crazy story, but I was really proud of the fact that, you know, we, we held up our commitment and, and, and played and we did our very best in that game. We got thumped, um, but, you know, such is life. And, and, and the other crazy thing is, is, you know, we were a complete amateur team, all college players. And we played, um, you know, we played a team in the final that was actually listed as a pro team and, you know, kind of later found out the the salary some of those guys were on. It was it was pretty unbelievable, but you know, such is life. So yeah, we did we did our best that year. It was one of the best, you know, absolute uh, best stories out there. And just to just to watch this group of guys grow over the course of the season and and, and end up making a national championship in the NPSL because it's such a tough thing to do. But yeah, it was it was an incredible incredible run and 
you know, I still think about it often. Yeah, that's awesome. And then I guess recently you were in August named the, the head coach of the national team for Turks and Caicos. What, what led to this job and how did this come about? So that, yeah, I, I even wonder that sometimes myself. I was, you know, standing in Cuba three months ago coaching my first international game going out and I get here. It was incredible. Um, so one of my players, uh, one of my, a goalkeeper, Eric Mozo, who's become a a friend of mine, played for me at Lubbock Christian and Eric called me, I don't know, it was probably this time a year ago and said, Hey, we're, he's uh, on the national team for the U S Virgin Islands and told me, Hey coach, we're, you know, we're, we're looking for a new coach here and I wanted to put your name in the mix. And I said, yeah, no problem. So I, I gave him my, sent my resume over and ended up being a finalist for the U S Virgin Islands. So, you know, the, the, the committee, I'd, I'd done really well in the interviews and um, it came down to the, the committee and made a recommendation and the, and the president went a little bit different route. And uh, I didn't end up getting that job. But through that process, I had met several people in the CONCACAF region and the Caribbean region that had, you know, given me a lot of insight about doing it. And uh, a couple months later, I had a call from a friend of mine uh, and he said, hey, I don't want to let you know, I just, just dropped your name into Turks and Caicos. And, um, you know, long story short, I had a great phone interview with them and flew down to Turks and did a couple presentations for the executive committee there. And, um, you know, these jobs are all unique, each, each kind of federation and, you know, they have their own kind of needs and, and things that they need to focus on. And, um, I was a good fit for them. They need, they, they needed some development with you, with their younger kids. They needed somebody that's kind of used to doing more with less, need somebody that could turn a program around. They were, you know, they were, they, they've held the, the worst or the lowest ranking in, in FIFA. Um, you know, the, the day I took the job, they were the lowest ranked team in FIFA. Um, so they had some unique needs and, and, and I felt like I could help solve some of their problems and, and apparently they felt the same. So, um, yeah, we came to terms and, you know, it's always scary when you leave the, you know, the, the college ranks and security of, of jobs and, and things like that, but just made the, uh, just made the decision to, to go and do that and just haven't looked back. Yeah. Well, I guess to go on that, what are some of the biggest challenges in running a smaller federations national team? One that, like you said, was at the bottom of the FIFA rankings at one point. How do you help build this program? Yeah, there's a lot of challenges. You know, it's interesting because people look at the team and go, you know, oh, my, my college team would beat these guys, a national team. And you're probably, you're probably right. But the fact remains that, you know, FIFA flew, FIFA, they flew me to London uh, my first month on the job for a, for a coach's uh, symposium. And it was just so clear to me there that, yeah, we, we understand we have the great teams, the top 20, the top 100 teams, but FIFA's really trying to grow the game from a grassroots level and trying to invest in, in soccer world worldwide and give people opportunities. And CONCACAF's doing the same thing. Um so for me, um, it's it, it's such a important job from the grand scheme of things. Because some days I look, you know, you look in the mirror, and go, wow, you're like actually coaching a FIFA-sponsored nation, and I, you know, I'm coaching against Concacaf nations. You know, I, I coach against you know three Gold Cup contenders in the last three months. It's an incredible experience. So it, it, it's interesting because you're you're coaching at the highest level. There's only 200 of these jobs or so in the world. You know, and I'm the only American doing it right now. But then when you look on the, you know, the ground level of it, it's it's a really low level, right? These guys haven't played many games. It's a small nation of about, you know, under 30,000 people total. And there's not great, you know, opportunities on the island. And so, you know, from a, from a grassroots kind of, you know, process from us, we've really had to come in and just change the way we – we approach coaching with these guys, even, even at the, even at the, you know, the basics, you know, you're, you're talking about, I got there my first week and we have five guys show up to practice one day, six guys show up to practice. You got guys rolling in late every day. You got guys that show up, you know, the week before a game and expect to be on the national team. So for us, you know, the first couple months is really just about, you know, setting a clear foundation and setting the, you know, setting the tone for the, you know, what we want to build for the future. And we were, we were fortunate enough to do that. We, we had to come in and, 
in in the first month before we played Cuba and really just make our assessments. That was that was our you know simple focus was to assess the player pool and and see what we were all about. We went into Cuba and um, you know struggled expectedly. It was our first game in you know several years and Cuba's very good. And we played them away. <clears throat> uh, month two, you know, we had a better idea of what what the pool looked like. And we wanted to kind of set the culture. It was really important in, in our second month that, that we set that culture. So uh, before we played the Guyana match, we, you know, we I had released a couple guys from the from the from the national team that that should have been out there and kind of set the tone. And we started having guys, you know, doing workouts on their own. Kids showing up on time for training session. Our, you know, more and more people were interested in playing and. Um, by month three, you know, as we prepared for the St. Vincent's game, we just had a unbelievable camp. Um, you know, the guys were, you know, fit. They were, you know, everybody showing up early for training sessions. We have, you know, we're, we're turning people away from from open sessions. We're turning people away from closed sessions. And there's just a whole, you know, spirit building there. So, you know, it was just all about us kind of coming in and laying a foundation. Sometimes that can go really well. And sometimes you're going to struggle when you make those decisions. If you leave a couple quality players off of the national team and you lose your locker room, then, you know, that could be, that could be the the end of you as a staff. But this time it worked out. Yeah. we, We, we made the right decisions and ended up, you know, putting it together in month three and beat a team about, you know, what, 40, 40 spots higher than us in the FIFA ranking, so it's it's pretty incredible. Yeah, so we'll, I want to get to that that win in just a second, but um, I want to talk about a little bit where you pull your players from and how do you do your scouting. Are these all people that were kind of already come to you, like you said, expecting to be on the national team, or are you out looking at someone who might have um, a Turks and Caicos parent, but they're playing college soccer somewhere in the United States? How do you do your recruiting and scouting for the national team? Well, it, it, it's been interesting. It's such a small nation. We had a pretty pretty good idea coming into it. The, the Secretary General there, Oliver Smith, has done a, a good job. So we had tabs of, you know, what, you know, all the guys that were out playing. You got guys like Billy Forbes, who, you know, oddly enough, played for me at Lubbock Christian, and I helped Billy with his with his first contract in the um, NASL days, but. Uh, Billy is actually one of the national team captains in Turks and Caicos. So it was nice for me to walk right into a, to an entity that was, you know, I already knew the kid and have a really good relationship. Bill and I are to this day pretty tight. And, um, so that helped. And Billy over the years, he's been involved with the, with the team. So you, you get to know some of these guys and you kind of learn pretty quickly who's out there and who's not. But yeah, for the most part, we, we knew who was in the pool. We knew it was a small pool. And, um, and then, you know, after that first month, it's been our job to start trying to, you know, just beat the bushes and find out, you know, who else is out there. So I'd say, you know, we've gotten through three camps, each camp's been different. We've added new players to the pool and some we like, and some we haven't, but it's, it's a mix, you know, we have a, the, the majority of our group is based, um, on the islands. Uh, most of the guys are working full time in the tourist industry. Some of them, you know, when we went to Cuba or, you know, left the country for the first time, um, we have two pros, you know, Billy Forbes in the, uh, who, who you may know, but Billy's playing in, in, uh, in the USL now. And then, uh, Marco Finellis plays, um, in, um, he, he's playing in Asia. So he, so we only have two pros and, you know, neither of the pros are playing at a really, really high level. Uh, but then we have a, you know, a, a mix of college kids, have a couple kids playing in Canada collegiately, a couple playing in the U S collegiately. And then, like I said, we have a, a pretty good young player pool. Now the island's interesting too, because it's, 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 you know, we, we probably could feel, you know, a team much better than what we currently have, but a lot of the kids that, uh, that are on the island are of, of, of Haitian descent. And we can't we can't use a lot of those guys in the national pool, so they're pretty selective about who they who they give um, you know uh, a Turks and Caicos passport to. So it's something we're working on. I did start last month or two months ago. I started a um, um, uh, a program for those kids. So we've we've got about six young, very very talented Asian kids that train with us in our PPP program. So they do everything with the national team, including training and, and 
in sessions inside. They do everything other than, than play the matches with us. But we, we think those guys are all, you know, they're working on, on, on getting their nationality and their passports, but it just hasn't happened yet. But so, yeah, to answer your question, it's been, you know, it's been difficult just trying to find, you know, find everybody that would be eligible. And, you know, we've, we've probably doubled the player pool now, but the quality I would say hasn't, you know, it hasn't tremendously increased outside of what we already knew about. Yeah, well, Billy's one player I know well because I remember him scoring in the, I think it was the 2014 NASL final um, for the San Antonio Scorpions. So it's a good player to have. That's right. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, can you talk a little bit about the, I guess, the domestic setup there as as far as academies and league setup go? I noticed that a lot of your players, or what's at least listed on Wikipedia, come from SWA Sharks and AFC Academy, make up a lot of the roster. Can you talk a little bit about the domestic league setup? Yeah. So again, you know, for, for any of the countries that, you know, are, are involved with FIFA and CONCACAF, it's important that they have a domestic league set up. So Turks does, it's very small. Basically there's two leagues set up now currently, like currently in Turks. So you have the, uh, what they call the PPL, the Pro Bowl uh, Premier League. And that's the, that's the league that's run by the Federation, uh, which is part of kind of what we need to be doing as a, as a Federation. Uh, to meet some of the FIFA mandates. And then they have, you know, basically the Haitian league there. So there's two leagues on the island and, and the players kind of, you know, do a little bit of crossing over. But the Pro Bowl Premier League probably has about six to eight teams traditionally. And then um, that's where all of our, you know, all of our, you know, homegrown, the local base players are playing, you know, week in and week out. The facilities are nice there. The the Federation, the Turks Federation, enjoys really good facilities for the Caribbean. We have um, you know, two full-size fields. One, one is uh, artificial turf, and the other is natural grass. And they sit next to each other, <clears throat> and both of them, both of them have lights, and and we have access to to nice training facilities. There's a small dorm there. Uh, looks like they've been approved for some future funding to build, you know, another set of dorms and some weight rooms and classrooms and things like that. So, you know, it's it's a nice setup as far as the you know kind of the Concacaf nations go, but. Um, but the uh, the PPL teams all have access to those facilities as well. Awesome, yeah. And then I guess you joined up just before the new Nations League started. How how valuable is this tournament going to be long term for smaller nations like yours? It's incredible. It's incredible. It's the only reason I took this job. I mean, you know, like back in the day, that I think a lot of these smaller countries and the, and the federation jobs they're you know, you've seen even some college coaches that have had these jobs over the years, but um, it's just it's just changed so much now with what Concacaf's you know invested in their initiative with it to start growing grassroots. It just gives us a platform to to grow in in the place. So you know, you look back at Turks in particular; they haven't had a you know they haven't they they you know before our win last month they hadn't had a you know an actual qualifying win in almost eleven years. And hadn't really played many meaningful games over the last four or five years at all. So the Nations League, you know, drops in and basically gives us a platform to, you know, uh, to play regularly. So in in the first qualifying cycle, we have four four games. They did a blind draw out of four pools, and we play you know a team from each pool uh, from the A, B, C, and then we and then this next game in March we play a team that's um, kind of our same level in the same pool. And then starting next year, they're going to take the they're going to take this qualifying phase and put us into three pods starting next year, and that's all promotion relegation from here on out. So it's 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 a great setup, and it just gives you know for me uh, it, it gives young you know young kind of aggressive coaches opportunity to go coach, but it also gives our you know gives our players hope something to look forward to. You know, can you imagine being on a national team where you play you know one you know, one World Cup qualifying game every, you know, every three or four years. It's just there's not a lot of hope there, and there's not a whole lot of, you know, anything to let, let these kids look forward to. So for us, it's really been a game changer. You know, we've played three games now, and we've got a lot of a lot of media access from it on the island. There's been a lot of excitement. We've had good crowds at home. Um, there's just a buzz about it. we got guys that are, you know, are getting notes every day, just, you know, coach we're just excited to be playing again and doing something important and um and the thing is that you know there, there's good players here so we'll end up placing a few of these guys in 
in universities over the next couple of years. I have guys that are they're good enough to be playing in the PDL and the NPSL, and um, it's just going to open up a lot of you know a lot of hope for for some of these you know great great young players. So that's that's really what makes me the most excited about it. And we know we're we're it's tough to compete. You know, if you draw the U.S. or Mexico or Cuba, and you know we're not we're not there yet. We're not going to be there, and but but it still gives us hope for the future. It just gives these guys a platform to showcase themselves and get better. It gives hope for a little nation, which is exciting for me. Yeah. Yeah. So in the early stages of this nation's league, you, you dropped two games, but you were able to pick up a big win against a St. Vincent team that reached the fourth round of world cup qualifying. I mean, they were playing the U S in world cup qualifying two years ago. Um, how big was that first win for you? And how big would it be if you were able to beat British Virgin Islands to guess League B is what they're calling the second step, how big for, would it be for you to get into that second level right out of the gate? God, man, I just got the chills when you're talking about it. You know, I still get super emotional and get the chills even thinking about it. It's, it's hard to explain. You know, when you go, you know, you, you, you kind of leave, like I said, you leave the confines of, of the call drinks and everybody's like, you know, not everybody, but people like, well, you know, what the hell are you doing? And you're going to this, you know, the lowest ranked team in the world. And, and we go out and I got two weeks to prepare for, for Cuba. Cuba's got 13 million people in it. And, uh, you know, a storied, you know, a storied federation. And we get, you know, we just get hammered by and we lose 11 and We come back for our second camp and we, we know we have to, we have to get rid of guys that deserve, you know, not deserve, but could be on the field. So we don't, we don't field our best team when we play against Guyana, but I just kept hoping we would build some groundswell. So coming back for that third camp, you know, getting ready for, for um, St. Vincent's. Uh, and at that point, right before we played St. Vincent's, they, they had climbed above um, Guyana and uh, Cuba in the FIFA ranking. So arguably it's your toughest game. And um, um so, so, you know, just coming into that camp, we knew we had some, I just knew it. I just felt that I said all week that we had the potential to, to, to do something and, you know, maybe not, maybe not win, but we knew we could cut that now. We had some massive, massive goalkeeping issues and um, the week leading up to it, I just made the executive decision out. You know, I, I sat my staff down and said, okay, you guys might be too old for this, but when I was growing up, we used to call a sweeper keeper, right? So you're playing pickup games and, Somebody's got to be the sweeper keeper. And um, so I took my whole uh, center back pool and, you know, made made the decision I wanted to find a goalkeeper out of there. And we did. I found um, a kid, uh, Mark Donald Pinellas, who had started at center back for us against Cuba and Guyana. And I told him, I need you to be a goalkeeper for this game. And uh, he trained, you know, trained at the goalkeeper position all week and had one of those kind of life-inspiring performances when we when we played against St. Vincent. It was incredible. So we had a good game plan. We, we It was the first time we had our full team in camp for a full week. So, you know, from Billy and the two pros all the way down, we had everybody in, in-house, and we had built a pretty good game plan and executed it really well. So we were sitting in, you know, uh, 83rd minute, we're – we're two nil and, and, and you're sitting on the sidelines, you know, just trying to go, okay, we, we haven't won this game yet. And don't start thinking about it, but there's still that little part of you that goes, maybe we're going to get a result here. And then, you know, within four minutes, it's tied, <laughs> it's tied two, two. And, uh, you know, they hit their stride and just running through us like water. And they had a chance to win the game and missed it. But look, I had told the team at halftime, uh, I don't like two nils a score. And, I told the boys in the locker room at halftime and said, no matter what happens in the second half, we're going to go for the win. I don't, you know, we're going to, we're going to gamble. I'm a gambler. So I've got to where I've been and, uh, and we're going to go for it. So in the 90th minute, it's tied 2-2. We're on the ropes. We get a corner kick and, uh, you know, the both center backs were looking at me and like, go, go. Um, so we sent both of our, cor- our center backs up for the corner kick and one of them, uh, a freshman in college who's, who's done a great job for us. But um, yeah, we scored in the 90th minute and it was just an absolute melee at the, at the facility. So it was just one of the, you know, one of the greatest moments of my coaching career. And, you know, for me, it's, it's a special moment for me and the staff, but I think more importantly is just all the notes we've got from the guys over the, over the past, you know, few weeks and, 
just just responding with some guys yesterday or posting more pictures yesterday, you know, two, three weeks later about, you know, the greatest win in their lives and the greatest moment. So for me, it's just, you know, it's just, it's just really cool being part of something that's been really inspiring to a lot of people. And just to be a little part of that's been a, been a fantastic thing for me. Yeah, that's that's a really awesome story. That's just a couple more to wrap up here. You have a big game coming up against the British Virgin Islands, like I mentioned, to maybe secure your secure your spot in League B. Um, what are you doing to prepare for that match? How many full training sessions will you have ahead of that game? And just like I've noticed, is there any way to, that you guys get a friendly in before that game or things like that? How do you set all that up? How do you prepare for this game? Yeah, it's a good question because um, it, you know it's difficult because if we if we win this game, we'll be in Pool B, which means we're going to be playing you know some of the bigger countries. You're back to potentially playing the Guyanas and the St. Vincent's and the teams that are you know much much further ahead of us. You're, you're talking about you, you got to remember most of these teams are coming in with full staffs, um, you know, with complete staffs. Uh, I, I got one volunteer. Um, assistant that I get to bring. He's not even paid. They cover, they, you know, they cover his flights over there. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, currently in the middle of negotiating, you know, the, the contract with Turks. And um, so, you know, a lot of those questions are just going to have to be answered by the, uh, by the Federation and Turks, you know, they, they haven't played a lot of friendlies in the past. Um, our, our secretary general is now looking for a friendly. Um, because, you know, we need games to prepare for these opportunities. and These guys need to be playing regularly. So to play in November and not have another, you know, kind of international match until March is, you know, is, you know it's not going to do us a lot of good. So we're hoping that, that he finds something for us at, at this point. Um, we only have two pros. One of them is not going to be eligible for uh, the British Virgin Islands game. He got his second yellow card in our last match. So, you know, arguably our most, you know, our best and most consistent player. So, yeah, we have, we have a lot of work to do. So typically what happens is, um, you know, I'm still based in Texas and I go out to Turks about three weeks before each international qualifier. Um, I'll spend about two weeks with the local guys, um, doing extra work with them. And then about the one week mark, we fly in all of our, you know, the rest of the pool that, that we select for the match. And we, we spend about a one week lead up getting ready for the game. In the meantime, um, you know, we have some people on the Island that help out with some fitness sessions and, and getting the guys to play. I stay in really good communication with the boys. We do Skype calls, um, you know, in between each game. And, and I kind of have a hand in that, but you know, it's difficult when you're not on an Island and, and we're not playing regularly. So, yeah, to answer your question, I'm not sure. Uh, as of now, I'll show up. My contract's up in March, and uh, we'll show up and get after it and hope you know, hope something positive comes out of it. So we're excited about it. There's definitely a buzz right now. And, um, you know, it, after March, I, I don't know what's going to happen after March. But, uh, yeah, that's that's kind of that's kind of where we're left right now. I'm on a commuter contract and, and just doing a lot of the work from home and, you know, keeping the guys on their on their on their fitness schedules and things. Yeah, and then just to finish up there, I guess out of contract in March. What what are your ultimate goals uh, with Turks and Caicos, and then after that, what are your ultimate goals personally in the game of soccer coaching? I think I think that's changed. You know, I think there 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 was a, a day and age when I could have told you exactly where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. Um, but I think, you know, things change. I have a, I have a young family, I have a two-year-old daughter and a five-year-old son. And, um, you know, I've moved the family around a lot over the last seven to eight years and we've jumped at every opportunity to get here. And I've been, you know, so fortunate to have a, a great life and, and family that supports it. But look, I, Tommy, I want to be somewhere. You know, I want to, I want to do something that matters in the game. And I want to be somewhere that that's supportive, you know, of, of soccer and supportive of, you know, of me. So, I mean, I, I think that's one of the things that, that I've struggled with, you know, from a professional standpoint is like, I took over one of the worst NAI teams in the, in the U S I went to the West coast and took over, you know, arguably the worst D2, you know, team in, in the West coast for sure. If not the U S I took over one of the worst, you know, PDL franchises in the nation. And I've taken over now the lowest ranked, you know, international team in the world. So, you know, there's a reason some of these programs are, are where they are. And I'm at a point in my career where I want to go somewhere where, you know, I don't necessarily have to do more with less. It's tough. You know, I, 
I, I use Guyana as an example. So, you know, we're out playing against Guyana. I have, um, you know, I have our kit man helping with the warm up and a, and a volunteer assistant. Guyana's got a staff of, you know, eight people there. They got their head coach and they got a, you know, they, they have their, um, you know, fitness experts and two coaches working with the first team and two with the second team. And look, I just, you know, to answer your question, I want to be somewhere where, where, where people support the game and support me. And I want to be somewhere where, where people want to win and do great things. So I don't know. It, it could be at the at college, at the Division One level. Uh, I think I would be pretty hard pressed. I've, I've done some time in in Division Two, and uh, without my summer commitments, now I'm I'm you know, I'm ready for uh, for a good Division One job. Uh, I also think uh, I've had a couple interviews with USL teams. I'm very interested in coaching at a professional level and and doing something on a on a ten year uh, ten month cycle. Um, with all the periodization work I've done in the past few years, I'm really, you know, I'm really interested in in uh, in doing something over the over the course of a professional season, a ten month season. Um, and then I think some doors are going to open up for me internationally. I, I think, you know, I think we've we've done something pretty special in Turks and Caicos, and you know, obviously, I hope I can continue my work there. But um, you know, if we can't come to terms at Turks, I think some other doors will open up for me, and you know, maybe that'll be at a at a federation that's, uh, you know, a little bit bigger and maybe, you know, maybe a little bit more forward, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I just know I want to get somewhere. I want to build, I want to sit tight for somewhere and I want to be somewhere that that values me and and values the game itself. Awesome. Well, I look forward to follow, continuing to follow your career. And I, I'm just letting you know, I'm looking forward to that British Virgin Island games. I hope you guys come out with a big win there. And thanks so much for joining us today, Matt. Yeah, we can't wait, man. And thanks so much for for showing an interest in all of us. And we're excited, and we're we're gonna we're gonna get after it in BVI and see what happens. But thanks, Tommy, and appreciate you guys. And looking forward to talking to you again. That was Matt Barnes, current head coach of Turks and Caicos. That's all for this show. I hope you enjoyed. And until next time. Keep supporting the beautiful. Well, I'm running down the road trying to loosen my load. I got seven.